Well, podcasters, hello and welcome to Banking Litigation Podcast, episode number 34. It's hot, clammy and overcast and raining intermittently. No, we're not now dabbling in weather to the same high quality extent as we do in podcasting. We're simply noting it must be Wimbledon fortnight and... Incidentally, 22 years to the day since I first set foot in the door uh, of this firm. But as you pick your strawberries and cream off the floor, let me turn to my sporting co-host and resident of SW19, I believe, Kerry Morgan. That's very true. A happy anniversary, John. Thank you very much, Kerry, for the avoidance of doubt. Kerry's talking about my time at the firm. And joining us is um, someone who's somewhat of a, a virgin in the podcasting world, Tom Wire. Good afternoon, Tom. Hi, John. Happy anniversary. Thank you very much, Tom. Tom's talking about my time at the firm. Okay, so um, uh, let's try and get some uh, back and forth tennis into this uh, today. Uh, Kerry, uh, I think you're going to take us through a very recent decision in your favourite current area of law, the Quinscare duty. Yeah, not even just current favourite, I think all-time favourite, John. Um, So the big match on Centre Court for this episode is the recent High Court Quinscare decision in the Federal Republic of Nigeria and JP Morgan. This decision will probably prove to be one of the biggest of the year and represents positive news for financial institutions processing client payments, with JP Morgan successfully defending a claim worth a whopping $1.7 billion dollars brought by the Federal Republic of Nigeria, which I'll refer to as FRN. $1.7 billion, Kerry. Sounds even bigger than the Wimbledon 2022 prize money. Could we have a quick reminder about what the Quinsquare duty entails? Yeah, of course, Tom. So uh, a bank's primary duty when processing payment requests is, of course, to comply promptly with an authorised instruction from its customer. But a bank is still required to exercise reasonable skill and care in processing those payments. The Quinscare duty is part and parcel of this secondary duty of reasonable skill and care, which sort of pulls against the primary duty to follow a client's instructions. So specifically, the Quinscare duty requires a bank to hit the pause button on the payment if there are red flags, which put the bank on notice that the order is part of a fraud on the customer. I think this is likely to, in fact, I've already seen banks asking tricky questions about what this means in practice. What uh, does it mean uh, for a bank to be on notice? What will cause it to be on notice? What might constitute a red flag? Yeah, indeed, I've heard similar queries myself from banks. Um, And actually, the court in this case has given us some helpful guidance, and we'll come back to this in a moment. But first, I will quickly explain the key background facts to put the case in context, which are set against the backdrop of a dispute between the FRN and two oil companies, Malibu Oil and Gas and a subsidiary of Shell, over the rights to exploit an oil field off the Nigerian coast. As part of a settlement agreement between those parties, the FRN opened a depository account with JP Morgan. The plan was for the Shell subsidiary to pay monies in, and then that FRN would later pay those sums on to Malibu. In line with that plan, authorised signatories on behalf of the FRN instructed the bank to pay out $1.1 billion in two tranches to Malibu in 2011 and then in 2013. It sort of brings to mind the wise words of Robert Burns that the best laid plans of mice and men gang after glee. And in fact, I think the word shell features in the Poet's Progress, another lovely Burns poem. You are our resident Burns expert, John. I know from our wonderful Burns nights. In January, for those who uh, are are not familiar. Yeah, we need to get those back on the schedule. Mm. COVID somewhat stopped those. Do a podcast from there. 
Karaoke. <laughs> Slightly different thing. Um, yes, so uh, to, to no one's surprise, uh, given we're summarising the outcome of a significant legal dispute, uh, the plan did indeed go wrong. So the abridged version of events is that there was a change of government in Nigeria, following which the FRN said that the settlement was actually part of a corrupt scheme by which the FRN had been defrauded by its own authorised signatories and Malibu. The FRN brought proceedings against the bank, asserting that the bank was on notice of Malibu's extremely murky past and should have realised that it could not trust the senior Nigerian officials from whom it took instructions. The high-level outcome is that the court dismissed the FRN's claim. The case failed on a preliminary finding of fact, an ace shot from the bank's perspective, (laughs) with the court ruling that there was no fraudulent and corrupt scheme involving the agreement under which sums were said to be due from the FRN to Malibu. In other words, that Malibu had a legitimate right to the funds that were transferred. Kerry, tell me. I'm interested. Does that mean that the Quince Care duty was not capable of being triggered in this case because there needs to have been an underlying fraud? Yeah, precisely. And and this goes to a key point on the Quince Care duty confirmed in this case um, about what the bank must have been on notice of. The court said that the bank must be on notice that the payment instruction itself may be vitiated by contemporaneous fraud, i.e. the thing of which the bank must be on notice is corruption relating to the payment instruction. So this means that notice of historic corruption or past financial crime is not sufficient. Having found that the payment instruction in this case was valid, it meant that there was nothing to put the bank on notice of, so the Quince Care duty was not triggered, as you say. However, the court went on to find that JPM was not grossly negligent and had not breached its Quince Care duty in any event. You said that the court gave some guidance on Quince Care red flags, so presumably these were obiter observations and they're not binding. Yes, that's mm. right. Um, and although the guidance isn't binding, it's still helpful because so few Quince Care duty cases have gone to full trial to flesh out these sorts of issues. Um, I'll have a shot at summarising a couple of the observations here, although I would very much recommend our blog post for anyone interested in the detail, uh, perhaps to compare that with the facts of any ongoing cases that you might have. Uh, there is, of course, a uh, link in the show notes. So firstly, an interesting feature of this case was the modification to the standard of care in the Quince Care duty, which I know is a point that you were very interested in, John. Mm. Uh, The FRN accepted that the effect of an exclusion clause in the depository agreement with the bank was that it had to prove not merely negligence, but gross negligence on behalf of the bank, a notoriously slippery concept. Uh, The court held this required there to have been an obvious risk that the FRN was being defrauded as a result of the 2011 and 2013 payments and that the bank seriously disregarded that risk. And secondly, the court considered a list of uh, facts or red flags that might put the bank on notice if the agreement to make the payment had been corrupt. The red flags uh, considered in the judgment are obviously really specific to the factual circumstances of the case, but some general principles were identified by the court. So again, it's probably best to look at the blog post for this. Um, But for the 2011 payments, the court said that although there were high risk features for the purposes of money laundering and financial crime, these were not sufficient by themselves to constitute red flags for the purpose of the Quince Care duty. And for the 2013 payment, the court found that the combined effect of criminal and regulatory investigations and press reports 
did move the dial towards putting the bank on notice. However, this wasn't enough under the gross negligence standard, which requires the risk to have been obvious. Um, I'll stop there because otherwise I could definitely hijack the whole podcast talking about this fascinating case. Yeah, you might even get John McEnroe swearing at you for doing that. Well, look, what a match. I believe the trial took weeks to play out in the courts. But pressing on, um, we have uh, another Quinscare uh, decision, this time for you, uh, Tom. Your turn to serve. Thanks, John. Let's hope I'm the Tim Hen man of the moment. Nice. Very good. That's right. If one wasn't enough, we've got another Quinscare decision, but this time it's a judgment from the Privy Council in Royal Bank of Scotland and JPSPC4. So I won't delve into the facts, but the distinctive feature of this case was that the claimant was not a customer at the bank. It was an investment fund whose money was held in trust by another party in the relevant account. This meant that the claimant was only a beneficiary of the money in the bank's customer account. So the board confirmed that the Quinscare duty is limited to protecting customers and does not extend to protect third parties. And consequently, it held that the Quinscare duty did not apply in this case. Now, the board paid particular attention to the purpose behind the duty, which has been described in lots of previous authorities on the topic, such as Singularis, and indeed in Quinscare itself. It said that the purpose of the duty is to protect the bank's customers, and on this basis, the board rejected an incremental extension of the duty to protect someone other than a customer. So that sounds consistent with Nigeria and JPM, where the High Court repeatedly stated that the duty was owed to the bank's customer. That's right, Kerry. So we're getting a bit of a theme uh, today, I think. And what does this mean for future Quinscare cases? Well, although Privy Council judgments aren't binding, they are highly persuasive. So given the constitution of the board, this more restrictive, purposive approach may be favoured by English courts in the next Quinscare decision. And indeed, this clashes somewhat with the approach taken by the Court of Appeal in Philip and Barclays which arguably expanded the duty beyond the scope of previous case law. So I think it will be interesting to see how this decision is treated by the Supreme Court in Stanford and HSBC and also in Philip and Barclays, because I think the logic of the board's decision will impact both of these important appeals. Well, I guess we'll have to wait for the Supreme Court to call this one. But in the meantime, if you'd like to read a more detailed summary of this case, please do check out the link to our blog post, which appears in the show notes. Well, thank you, Tom, uh, for that. A brilliant serve that I'm going to have uh, some difficulty in returning, but I'll do my very best. So we're moving away now from Quinscare. Kerry, don't feel too sad. There'll be another one, no doubt, soon. Um, uh, But I'm going to look at the longest and uh, most complex uh, civil fraud in English legal history, or certainly one of them. And of course, I'm talking here about ACL, Netherlands, BV and Lynch, otherwise known as the autonomy case. So in a previous edition of this podcast... Uh, we've discussed the summary published by the High Court, where we learned that the claimants had substantially succeeded in their claim against two former autonomy executives. And we now have the full judgments, which is at 600,000 words, excluding schedules, rather long indeed. John, one of our banking litigation associates was keen that I tell you that's actually longer than the entire Lord of the Rings series plus The Hobbit. I'm glad we're putting our associates to good use, Tom. Yes, uh, well, there we are. But here's a three-minute summary uh, the case involves a five billion US dollar civil fraud action brought by Hewlett Packard uh, Corporation in connection with its acquisition of the UK software company Autonomy Corporation Limited in 2012. The claimants argued that Autonomy's executives had made dishonest statements and omissions in Autonomy's published information and therefore brought the claims under Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, as well as common law misrepresentation and deceit claims and the Misrepresentation Act 1967, as well as claims for breach of defendant's management duties, quite a panoply of cases. 
So the case is effectively an M&A dispute, but we want to draw attention to it because it's the first claim to reach trial that's been brought under Section 90A. And there's been an increase in securities litigation in recent years, and we think that the legal principles from autonomy may be of relevance to such claims. Perhaps it's just me who's really forgetful today, John, mm. but could you give our listeners a brief reminder of the Section 90A FISMA regime, just to put this in context? <clears throat> Absolutely. I'll keep it at high level, I promise. So Section 90A uh, and its successor, which was Schedule 10A of FISMA, is the statutory regime imposing civil liability for inaccurate statements made in information disclosed by listed issuers to the market. So what we're looking at here is the type of liabilities that companies listed on the stock exchange may have to their shareholders when they make statements to the market which turn out to have been misleading or which omitted certain key information. Now, given the length of the judgment, it's pretty hard to navigate uh, and to pull out the key points of interest for banks and other listed corporates. Um, we've tried to help with our blog post on the judgment, to which there is a link in the show notes. Thanks, John. I'd encourage listeners to have a read if this area is of interest to you. Well, indeed. Yes, I'd echo that. Uh, and it helpfully highlights the key lessons learned from the judgment, with a particular focus on the scope um, of the Section 90A FISMA regime. The two-stage test for liability under that provision, which contains both objective and subjective elements, the need for claimants prove reliance, and it also touches on loss in the context of FISMA claims. So following on from this, we have one more case which provides some helpful guidance on Section 90A or Schedule 10A of FISMA, and that is various investors against G4S. Without getting too bogged down in the fact uh, the case goes into some detail on the meaning of the term PDMR, or Persons Discharging Managerial Responsibilities in the Section 90A context. The legislation itself states that a PDMR can be any director of the issuer or a person uh, occupying the position of a director. So there are three traditional categories of director in English law, as our podcasters are aware, de jure, de facto and shadow directors. I always say de jure in my head. That's because you're wrong. But in the context of an application in the G4S litigation, the claimants advocated a wider definition of the term to include senior executives with sufficient control or responsibility for managerial decisions. Uh, But the court rejected this extension, holding that director should be given its usual meaning. So just to remind you, de jure, de facto or shadow director. Noted, contained in brain. Good. It's also worth pointing out very quickly that for the purposes of the application, the defendant did not contest that de facto directors could be uh, PDMRs, but the judge had some reservations about the clarity of the pleadings on that issue. But as I mentioned, there is, of course, a blog post on this case, and we have put a link in the show notes. But that's enough um, for me, um, whether de jure or de facto. Um, we're going to finish off now with a quick fire serve and volley uh, round between Kerry and Tom on some key procedural developments. Tom, over to you. John, can I just say your excitement's infectious. You're quite the Andy Murray of sunshine today. Very good again. But thank you very much. We have him on more. <laughs> I'm here all week. But I have for you this week a development from the US stemming from the exciting and confusing world of cryptocurrency. Now, due to the fact that many defendants in cryptocurrency cases are anonymous, claimants often have difficulty serving court documents on them. So the Supreme Court of the state of New York has now allowed the legal representatives of a fintech company to serve a temporary restraining order on a pseudonymous defendant via a non-fungible token, or NFT. 
The term is nifty, Tom, but can you please remind our podcasters of what an NFT is? Happily, John. So an NFT is essentially a token that uses blockchain technology but differentiates itself from fungible cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin by the fact that unique information can be encoded into each token, hence why it can't be exchanged or converted. So in this case, the NFT had a hyperlink in which the service documents were located with a mechanism to track when a person clicks on it. Now, perhaps the English court will follow suit in the near future, because in fact, the courts have seemed sympathetic to the challenges of affecting service in crypto cases, and have already permitted service through email, social media, and virtual data rooms in previous cases. This case is mentioned in a recent blog post, which we have included in the show notes. Kerry, back over to you. Thanks, Tom. Now, I'd like to talk about the latest in a line of High Court decisions involving the new practice direction 57AC, which sets out certain new requirements for trial witness statements, as you will all know. Uh, That case is Primavera Associates and Hearts Mavara Council. I seem to recall that um, practice direction 57AC had spawned a fairly considerable amount of satellite litigation uh, over the last year or so, some of which we've discussed on this podcast but it seems easier than ever to make an unforced error with witness statements. Do you think that parties may be seeking to use the new practice direction tactically? I think that's certainly a risk, Um, but the court seems to be taking a fairly measured approach to its enforcement so far. So in this recent case, the defendant contested a revised witness statement for the second time on the basis that it still, amongst other things, sought to take the court through documents and argued the claimant's case. Now, while the court struck out certain offending paragraphs of the revised statement, it refused to strike out the statement in its entirety. The court suggested that it was not possible for the defendant to argue that the witness statement as a whole should be struck out, simply by citing specific paragraphs as examples of continued non-compliance. The judge also rejected the idea that the practice direction prevents witnesses from saying anything in their statement that has been mentioned in a document before the court, saying the idea behind the prohibition on narrative is to prevent lengthy uh, discussions of events by going through the bundle. However, as I said, certain parts were struck out, uh, and this was on the basis that the witness failed to say how well they recalled matters and whether their memory had been refreshed by considering documents. So it's yet another reminder to make sure you follow the requirements of the new practice direction in your witness statements. Tom, over to you for the winning volley. Thanks, Kerry. I'd just like to wrap things up by getting our ducks in a John McEnroe and drawing attention to the fact that the Civil Procedure Rule Committee has approved a number of new jurisdiction gateways in Practice Direction 6B, which are aimed at filling gaps in and clarifying current rules relating to service out of the jurisdiction. So these will come into effect in October of this year. We won't go into detail here, but these changes are summarised in an article written by HSF partner Anna Patoldi, which is available in the show notes. If you're interested in questions concerning service of documents and jurisdiction, do take a look at the article. Game, set and match, I think. Well, podcasters, I hope we haven't dropped the ball and that we've helped you today to Virginia wade through these cases and maybe saved saved you some hard Steffi graft uh, with with that, if that works. Anyway, look, uh, thank you very much to uh, Tom, uh, our um, visitor this afternoon, and to... Kerry um, for uh, co-hosting as always. Do you know Kerry, Wimbledon was originally founded um, as a croquet match rather than tennis? No, well, I you do now. I do like croquet as well as I tennis I like croquet though. too. Yeah. There we are, something else in common. Okay, thank you very much. James behind the glass uh, and uh, play us out. <laughs>